So anybody have one of those one of those clocks that like? So I, we got two in our house that the every year I'm like, oh, I I because I hate. So one of them's like this. You got up and turn the like seriously. It takes you like half an hour. You're like, whoo, to get it around to get to the right time because it's because you got to go around the Earth and back again to get it where it's supposed to go. And then uh, the other ones, the digital ones, it's like has the PM and AM. So I'm like. All right, to get it back around. Whew, it has been a tough morning. <laughs> hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes to go deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions to go deeper. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More, and then events in Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements. All that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me? The reading of God's Word. And despite getting an extra hour of sleep, I am still tired today. I don't know why. Uh, this is Ruth, chapter 4, verse 14. And it says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us as a people how to live in the understanding of your great redemption of us and that we would live out our understanding of that by how we interact with those around us, that we would make your name great, that we would lift you up and in turn your people would live in the great joy and the blessings that you provide. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so today is actually a bonus week. This is actually week 11 of the book of Ruth. When I originally wrote out the book of Ruth, I had kind of put everything together, read my commentaries, wrote everything, and then the end of Planting Roots technically was last week, so I added last week. And then I was listening to a podcast by one of my favorite guys. His name's Tim Keller. And he did this thing called Immigrant's Courage. And I was like, oh, that's so much better than me. And I'm like, I've got, and since I can't get you guys to listen to our podcast, I figure I would take that and kind of regurgitate it to you. So there'd be a lot of quotes from Keller, a lot of directions of stuff that he talks about, because I, I just thought it was so good. And plus, he agreed with me in a lot of places. That's always important. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to give you that, and so a lot of quotes from him and stuff, because I think that the things that he says really sums up a lot of this, and it was very, very good. Uh, two weeks ago, I gave you a lot of backstory into the book of Ruth and things like that, and if you haven't been here for this series, uh, Ruth is essentially partly the story of what Keller calls an immigrant coming into a new culture to a unfamiliar country. I, I know it seems like we have issues with foreigners today, but America was originally uh, built on immigration. It's originally built on that. A couple of years ago, my wife and I went out to visit her family in New England. And we do that every about every year and a half. And as when we go there, I have all these ideas of things I want to do while we're visiting her family. And so then I was like, hey, let's go to New York, do the, the tourist thing. Second time I've been in New York, the first time I wanted to see the Empire State Building, and I got in a cab. I didn't tell any other service this. Um, I got in a cab and said, take me to the Empire State Building. And they pull over to the side of the road at one point, and I'm like, where is it? They're, it's right there because everything's so big you can't tell. And I go, he's like, get out of the cab. And I go, okay. I open the door, bike messenger, into the door. Yeah, it just flies over the door. And I'm like, ah! and he's like, get out. And I'm like, and I get out and I shut the door and, and then the guy's like, and I walk over and I apologize to the guy on the bike. And apparently nobody does that except for me. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he's like, oh, it's okay. I'm like, how, how is that number? Anyway, nothing to do with anything. So 
couple of years ago, we're visiting again, and we go to New York, go to Battery Park, uh, go out to Ellis Island. And Ellis Island is the place for a very long time where all the immigrants that came into the country, they were processed through Ellis Island. And if you walk around, there, there's all these plaques and all these different stories of people that came in to America. And you have all these stories of, of fear mixed with excitement, mixed with dread, mixed with hope of what America could be for them. People would buy the, the cheapest tickets they could on an ocean liner. They'd call this steerage. And it was in the bottom of the ship where they kept the animals, hence the word steerage. And, and I, I still call economy on airlines steerage. I ride steerage. It's like, you want economy? Is that steerage? I'll take it because it's cheap. And I'm like, moo, when I walk into the airplane, but whatever. <laughs> Cheapest tickets to get the land of opportunity. Now, there's stories of these young men who had just gotten married. Their wife is just pregnant. And they would get these tickets and they'd go to the new land of opportunity to try and make some money to bring their family over there so they could survive. And then you'd, you'd have these stories about people who, a couple years later, a, a wife would get these tickets in the mail, and they'd grab their kids and their stuff, and they'd, and they'd pack up and just go to the new land, this land of opportunity, and they would meet their husband again. We live in a country mostly of immigrants. And if you do a DNA test of yourself, you'll probably see where you come from from all over the globe. And ask, you ask the question, why would people do that? Why would people risk everything? And the answer is almost always the expectation of a better hope, of a better life. No one leaves their country for the expectation of a worse life. All the refugees that want to come to America today, it's not like, yeah, I want to go there because it's going to be horrible. No, they're thinking anything has to be better than where I'm coming from, and so they want to come. And that's kind of partly the story of Ruth. It's, it's an immigrant story, but it's also the story of interracial friendships and interracial marriage. In, in the book of Ruth, Naomi is going to be, and her family is the first immigrants because they go to this place called Moab. And tragedy eventually strikes, and her husband Elimelech and her two sons die. But their two sons, uh, Malon and Kilian, those are actually Canaanite names. They're not Hebrew names. So it shows when they moved to Moab, they fully integrated into that culture. And these sons marry Moabite women. And originally when Elimelech, Naomi's husband, decided, I'm going to go to this land of Moab, he went there because he was afraid to trust what God told him to do. He goes to this other country so he won't die. But he goes there and he dies anyway. And now Naomi is left bereft. It's just her and her daughters-in-law. Everybody else is gone. She is poor. She has no idea what she's going to do with her life. And she thinks that, she probably thinks if I go back to Israel, I can't take my daughters-in-law with me because if I do, no one's going to accept them because they're Moabites. They're a hated culture. Nobody's going to want to be around them. She has no economic hope whatsoever. In that culture, how do you survive when something like this happens? You only have four options. Number one, you go and work in the fields. But the text indicates that she is too old to go and do that. Naomi's too old. The second thing is you could get married. The text indicates that she's also too old for that, and she doesn't have the best disposition in the world. It's like, hi, Naomi, I'll go find me another woman. It's okay, you know, because she's just not a happy woman. Uh, But also the text indicates in this that she was so old she couldn't have children, and in that culture, family is really everything. And if you couldn't bear children, you didn't really get married at that point for, for companionship or sex. You got married for who could provide a family, and she couldn't do that. Well, the third thing is you could have your children support you, but her children are dead, and the daughters-in-law attached to her, again, are Moabites, thinking there's no way they would be accepted in in the culture in Israel. And the fourth thing you could do is you could rent out or sell your family land. And that's where you eventually get to in chapter 4. They are looking at a way to sell their family land. Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. 
through 4. So you have Naomi. She is economically, spiritually, emotionally without hope because of the society that she lived within. Anything that she thought would give her meaning is now gone. No family, no land, no name. Therefore, she thinks she has no significance whatsoever. That's just the first chapter. So I told you that the first chapter was a real bummer. I'm glad you all made it the four weeks through the first chapter. And I don't have time to give you all the details, but what eventually happens is one of the daughters-in-law named Orpah, she goes back to her family and her gods and says, See ya. Ruth, in turn, commits her life to Naomi and Israel's God and says, I am going to go with you. I'm going to go to Bethlehem, and I'm going to support you as best as I can. And in the midst of that, Ruth meets this guy named Boaz. There's this cute little love story interlude. After some tense situations, you should listen to the podcast if you missed it. I know you won't, but whatever. Uh, Ruth 4, 13 to 17 says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And you get to the end of chapter 4 and this hope now returns to Naomi. She has been redeemed. Why? Verse 14 and 15, we'll come back to this a few times throughout this today, but it says, these women say, you have been renewed, your life has been restored because there is a redeemer. Now, the book of Ruth is about Ruth, hence the name, okay, the the book of Ruth, but I also told you all the way back, the first week we hit this, this is also the story of Naomi. It could have actually been called the book of Naomi. Naomi, when she comes back from Moab, she is completely bitter. Her friends are like, who's that? Is that Naomi? And she's like, don't call me Naomi, because that means pleasant and sweet. She's like, call me Mara, which means bitter, and I'm angry. God has done all of these horrible things to me. I've come back empty. How was she redeemed by the end of chapter 4? Keller says it points to the story of Ruth's life and Naomi's life and our life and how they all fit together. And he says there are actually three redeemers in the story. He said there's a formal redeemer, a surprise hidden redeemer, and then there's a real redeemer. So I'm going to talk about these and faith and what we can all learn from that, especially in regards to the gospel. So the first one you run into is this formal redeemer. Now, the word redeemer refers to what in that culture would be known as a kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. Uh, In this, it's a relative who would come back and purchase freedom for you if you got yourself in a situation that was untenable. We talked about this two weeks ago, again, on a podcast you won't listen to, but it's there. Uh, The first person in the story clearly seen is Boaz as this redeemer. He is a kinsman by blood. He is Naomi's husband's and Ruth's dead husband's. Kin. Kin is not a word we use so much anymore, but if you go to the Deep South or talk to a hillbilly, like, kin, like, my kin. That's, that's how they say it, and then you run from them because banjos will start playing, you've got to go. Uh, what, what makes him a kinsman redeemer is that they are related. So, so how does this work? Well, Ruth and Naomi, they come back to Bethlehem in complete poverty. And the first thing Ruth will do is go out to glean in this field. Now, what, what that means is, according to God's law, landowners are not allowed to harvest all the way to the edges of their field. They're supposed to leave stuff on the edges of their field so the poor could come and get some food. They would glean, that's called gleaning, and they would take it home and they'd be able to eat. It wasn't a handout. They actually had to come and work. For it. So Ruth decides to go and glean, but it's not a permanent solution because harvest time only lasts so long, and she is also a Moabite. So this is a very 
scary proposition for her to be in. She's taking her life in her own hands to go out into the public and glean as a Moabite in this culture. Ruth 2.3 kind of gives you the connotation of this in those words. So she ends up in the field of a guy named Boaz. Some people, when they read the text, say, oh, it was by coincidence or chance. No, the text is telling you it's by God's providence. God brings her to this place, and she meets this guy named Boaz, and Boaz sees her and learns who she is. And then Boaz says this, so you know what kind of danger she was in. In Ruth 2, 8, 9, he says, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. Keep close, but keep close to my young women. And then he goes to his young men, and he says, And don't touch her, and if you do, I will bury you, because he's a good dude. And so you learn a lot of stuff here. Boaz knows Ruth can be hurt. Ruth could be raped if she hangs out on the edges of a field. And, and in that, like if someone went and, and they raped her, they would say, well, she's a Moabite. She's a seductress. She made me do it. And everybody would be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense because she's a Moabite. So he goes out of his way to make sure she's taken care of. He warns the guys that work for him to watch out for her and protect her. And Boaz didn't want her out gleaning, not necessarily because the the poor couldn't be trusted. This is more about race relations. And sometimes we have it in our mind, like people usually come at homeless people with with two different ideas. One is they're always evil and horrible people, and the other is they're always great. Guys, it's somewhere in the middle. I have met some homeless guys who are homeless because of really tough circumstances, and I met some who are just crazy and mean. A couple years ago, there's a guy sleeping right outside this door in his sleeping bag. Nice guy little odd, nice guy. In the middle of the night, another homeless guy shows up, beats the crap out, snot out of him, snot out of him, and steals his sleeping bag and runs off. The fire department's out here, the, the sheriff's out here. It's, it was a crazy situation. What I'm saying is, we're all horrible, okay? We're just all bad. That, that's how it is. It's I'm equal opportunity. We're all bad. Anyway, I don't know why I told you that. So Boaz says, Boaz says to, I want you to stay by my young women. And this means the virgin women that work in this field. So you can harvest, then you can take that home for yourself. Ruth is astounded by the graciousness of this guy named Boaz who would open the door metaphorically to this racially and marginalized woman who who she was. That night, she goes home to Naomi. She doesn't just have some gleaning. She actually has 50 pounds that she has harvested out of the field. And Naomi says, where did you get this? This isn't gleaning. This is harvesting. This is harvesting. And so Ruth says, oh, I met this guy named Boaz out in the field. And Naomi's like, what? That's amazing. And Ruth 2.20, she's like, you got to stick close to that guy because he is one of our redeemers. One of our redeemers. Now, Ruth has no idea what that means because she wasn't raised in that culture. But when Israel came into the promised land, all the land was divided between families in in these different tribes. But God knew that people were going to have hard times in their families because of certain decisions that people make that aren't always the best. In Jewish law, Leviticus 25 specifically, God makes a couple provisions in the law that would make it easy for families to get a second chance to get their land back. Why? Because God is gracious and God is good and he wants to make sure that we take care of one another. God didn't want his society to be marked by these huge divergences between extremely rich and extremely poor. And so God says every 50 years is going to be this thing called the year of Jubilee. If someone had to sell their land, it's going to go back to the family from whence it came so that there isn't this huge divergence between people. The land goes back. The descendants get another chance. But 50 years is a long time. I guarantee you I will be dead in 50 years. And if I'm not, 
Maybe just help me out a little bit, okay? Because I will not be getting around that well. So God said, before the 50 years is up, the land can be redeemed out of debt. It can be ransomed and it can be brought back. But it has to be by a member of the family who lost it. It's a way to keep families together. Again, that's God's graciousness to families. And so Naomi realizes that God brought Ruth to this guy, this guy named Boaz, one of the few relatives she has left. And so the plot thickens because the redemption that Boaz has to do could be very costly, could be very enormous. Like he would have to buy the land and it could be in huge debt because Elimelech, Naomi's husband, was a knucklehead, didn't know what to do with money. So it could be a huge debt. And on top of that, the family can't be restored unless he marries someone from the family. Technically, that would be Naomi. And nobody wants to marry Naomi. <laughs> Uh, and so and so this is one of the reasons why Naomi kind of adopts Ruth in and takes her in. So Ruth is part of the family, so he could actually marry Ruth. But Ruth is a Moabite. And again, these are huge issues to overcome. In Ruth 3, verse 9, after little interchanges between Boaz and Ruth, Ruth is laying at Boaz's feet, and she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This could be you are my or you are our redeemer. What she says here is, take me to be your wife, redeem my family, give us back a name, give us back an inheritance. And you can really sing like a Disney song here, because he said yes. He says yes. He, he goes and does it. So what he come, becomes in the text is this formal redeemer in the text. He's the great bridegroom. Not only does he take on the debt of the family, he absorbs it, but he marries Ruth. And when he marries Ruth, all of his wealth, which wasn't hers, that she had never worked for, becomes becomes hers. She gets a whole brand new life because of how Boaz brought her in and made her his bride. This is a great picture of the gospel right here because we are like Ruth. And Jesus is like Boaz, and he comes and he pays the debt for our sin. He brings us into his family. He makes us new and gives us a brand new life, all because of what he has done. The Keller says there's a second redeemer in the book. Uh, he, and this is what we call the hidden or surprise redeemer. He says, he says, we know this because the name of the book isn't Boaz. The name of the book is the book of Ruth. Verses 14 and 15, again of chapter 4. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to Him. So that statement there says, God is renewing, God is sustaining Naomi's life. Why? Because your daughter-in-law. That's why. Now, the, the, the way that Ruth has loved and committed herself to Naomi, they say it is better than seven sons. Now, at the very beginning, when I talked to you about immigrants coming to another, another country, it's always for the hope of a better life, something better than where they are leaving. But when Ruth commits to Israel's God and to Naomi in chapter 1, she essentially says, I'm coming, and I don't expect a better life. As a matter of fact, I may even actually have a worse, a worse life. And that's not what most immigrants say. She is also unlike most Christians today. Most Christians today who follow Jesus do so because someone has said, Oh, God's going to bless you. God's going to give you whatever you want. You just, you just need to give your life to Jesus. Modern Christianity seems to be touted that way. That you have a round hole in your heart. And you've been trying to fill it with a square peg of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But Jesus is a round peg. And he fits perfectly into your heart. Who knew? You just need that. And what we do is we make Jesus like a product. Oh, if you just buy Jesus as this product, well, then your life will be okay. You just need that thing. And what we do is we make our salvation all about us. 
about all that we want. And when you look at Ruth, she doesn't have that warped view of God. She doesn't at all. Why does she commit? Because she knows who the real God is. She even says, may the Lord deal with me. She's so she's in relationship with God because she doesn't use the generic term God. She uses the term Yahweh, God's covenant name with his people. And she uses it after, after she has decided to stay with Naomi, which means she's counted the cost of what it means to follow God. Her decision is clear, but it was probably really hard for her because Ruth probably could have stayed in Moab and she could have had a family, her family that was still there. She probably even could have found another husband because the text indicates she was exceedingly beautiful. She probably maybe had a little bit of safety if she stayed in Moab, but her faith would never have grown, never have grown. So she decides she wants to be with the people of God. Keller points out that when she does this, where she can grow in her faith, it essentially makes her a person with no status at all. But for Ruth, for her and her life, the choice is clear. I want to follow God, and I want to support my mother-in-law. And she understands that if she does not go with Naomi back to Israel, Naomi will probably die. And the only hope Naomi has is that Ruth would go and commit her life to her and to Israel's God. And that's what Ruth does. If Naomi is going to have a name and a land, Ruth has to give up every sure thing that she has in her life. Her own name, her own family, her own country. And so that's what she does. She impoverishes herself so Naomi can eventually become rich. She becomes an alien and a stranger, and as a result, Naomi is redeemed. Do you see how that is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus comes in human flesh as a man. He leaves everything to rescue and redeem and to save us. This is how Ruth is also the picture of a redeemer. This is, this is why when we, it's the hidden surprise redeemer because, oh, we didn't see that coming because it's Ruth. This is why it says, your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons. That's, that's that whole idea behind that. So one redeemer is Boaz, another one is Ruth. And in the end, what changes Naomi from being bitter and angry to being full of life again, it's not a sermon, it's not a great book, it's not arguments, it's not a government program, it's friendship and love. She will have economic and spiritual redemption because of friendship. That's what it comes to. This is why at Element, we are always trying to push gospel communities on you guys. We want you in communities centered around the gospel. Because people are not going to be changed by how well or most likely how not well I preach a sermon. I mean, you might get inspired by it at some point for something I say. But if you don't have a community around you to talk through things and work through things, you'll never really grow. One of the things I've learned in my life is that books and classes, they're, they're all great things. But I really only begin to flesh things out as I talk to people. And I begin to grow as things go deeper into my own life. And so real friends are those in our lives who see the transforming power of God working in us and through us and pointing it out so we would understand what God's doing. And we do that through friendship. In Ruth, the technical definition of friendship is essentially time and consistency. That's what it is. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. That's not information. It's not skill. It's simply being present and committed and being there for somebody over the course of time in the context of what life brings. Guys, you don't have to be smart to be someone's friend. Just look at your friends. Or my friends. Or me. You, know, it's, you don't have to be smart, smart to do that. It, what it is, is we essentially we commit to each other in friendships. You know, sometimes people come to Element and they say, the community there didn't welcome me well enough. And I don't say this, but my first thought when somebody says that to me is, well, who did you go out of your way to welcome? Who did you see that was new and wasn't connecting? And you went up to and you said, hey, hi, I'm so-and-so. Who are you? 
have you, have you started to have those conversations going out of our way? Because the truth is, no one can be everyone's friend. I can't, you can't. People have left Element before because I can't be everyone's friend. Studies have shown that by the time you go through your life, you will only have 6 to 12 close friendships in your life. 6 to 12. You'll have a lot of acquaintances, a lot of little friends, but those who go day by day by day and go through the course of your life and your ups and downs and all the crazy stuff you do and still love you through the midst of it, 6 to 12 in the course of your life. And not everybody around you has to be that person. Not everybody does. But I'll tell you, a church is nothing without gospel-centered community. And if you are here and you come and you just sit and you soak it up and you never extend yourself to others in friendship and community, you will never live in the full power of God because God intends for us to do life together. Why is Naomi's life being renewed? Why is it being sustained? Obviously, it's Jesus and God doing some amazing stuff. But it also says because your daughter-in-law loves you. That's why. For your daughter-in-law who is better to you than seven sons. In traditional culture, family is everything. And when it says seven sons, that's a synonym for a perfect family. Traditional culture will come to you and it'll say, and it'll say, daughters are not as important as sons. You need to have sons. They're better. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's how it was for a very, very long time. If you're trying to build family, oh, you need sons. In countries where they have restrictions on how many kids you can have, they're trying to have sons. But the gospel says the grace of God in this woman's life is better to you than seven sons. It's better than a perfect family. This is why the good news of Jesus changes everything. Traditional society will come and it will say family is everything but what if your family is horrible what if they're mean to each other what if they're mean to everybody else what if they're abusive what if that's your family the gospel says this is now your family this is these are your brothers and sisters this is your family Traditional society says men are everything. The gospel says that men and women were created as equal image bearers in the sight of God. And we can both step into each other's life and redeem one another. Traditional society will say your race is everything. Stay in your culture. But the gospel says we will only become unified by focusing on the person of Jesus. Only that way. Laws aren't going to change anybody. Shaming people isn't going to change anybody. Only by focusing on who Jesus is will we really become unified. This is a book that is about interracial marriage and interracial friendship. In our lives, whenever we are not defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to start to be defined by our culture. And that is not a good thing. And for some people, this means you've got to have the perfect family. And so you, you put all these things, if everybody thinks that you're a perfect family, they never see you yell at your kids or yell at your wife or yell at your husband. Oh, we're perfect. Everything's wonderful. I have never seen a real marriage that people don't yell at each other in or argue vigorously or whatever you want to call it, right? But when the grace of God comes into our life, we are freed from all of those things. And we can be who God made us to be. You don't need seven sons. We don't need a perfect body. We don't need a perfect career or a perfect social calendar. The gospel comes in and it says if God is the center of our life, that is better than anything else in the world. This is why we follow Jesus. That's the truth of the book of Ruth. Keller calls it the barrier-breaking power of grace. It is really astounding in ancient times that a book like this would have ever been written. Keller says that Ruth shows us the radical imperative of discipleship. And this is because Ruth says, I'm going to obey God and I'm going to do the right thing no matter what happens. I will do the right thing. Nothing but death will keep me from following him because she knows the Lord is her Lord. So she puts no conditions on her obedience. God doesn't come into our life to help us fulfill whatever we think our potential should be. 
if there are any conditions on our obedience to God, we don't understand the gospel. We can never say, God, well, I'll follow you if you do this. That's not the gospel. We've just made our lives all about ourselves. And if that's how you see Jesus, you may as well go down to the, to the restaurant and get yourself a little Buddha and be all, money, 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 because that's all you're doing. That's all you're doing. Buy one of those and just do that because the real God changes us and deals with us as we are and grows us into who we're meant to be. And sometimes that is really hard. Ruth says, may the Lord deal with me if I expect anything different than what God wants to bring into my life. And hopefully as a believer, we all get to that point in our lives. We take our hands off. We take all conditions off our life and say, God, you do what you want to do. And I know for a lot of people that sounds impossible. This is why we are saved by grace. That is the beauty of the gospel. So thirdly, there is the real Redeemer. Again, verses 14 and 15, it says, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And then it says, And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. Now, Boaz is already great in Israel. So you know it's not talking about him. Who is it talking about? The child of the promise. Now, we stand on the backside of Jesus' birth and death and resurrection. And so we get to look at it and say, Oh, that's who it's referring to. It's referring to Jesus, the one who be born in Bethlehem. This Redeemer comes, and it looks a lot like Boaz and Ruth. Like Ruth, he leaves his father's home and comes to rescue us. Like Boaz, he not only pays our debt, but reaches out and reunites with us, so all of his wealth becomes ours. Everything that Jesus has, we are adopted into his family, and we get everything that he has. Like Boaz, he becomes flesh. Jesus doesn't save us by simply saying, live a good life. If he did, he wouldn't have to become flesh and blood. He wouldn't have to become our kinsman. He wouldn't have to do that. He could have just said, now let me tell you how to live. But he doesn't. Jesus comes and he lives the life that we could never live. He lives a righteous, perfect life. And he gives that righteousness to us. We call it imputed righteousness. He gives it to us by faith. He becomes the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. He is our substitute. He is our mediator. And to become a Christian isn't to say, I'm going to live like Boaz and Ruth. It's to understand that Jesus came to rescue us. He who had the greatest name took on flesh and blood and lived the life that we should have lived. Keller says he is the greatest immigrant. He became poor and marginalized for us. And because of that, we get to be invited into the family of God. He gets to truly be our kinsman. We get to become family with who God is. We are invited to be redeemed. We are invited to have our sins paid for. We are invited to have our debt taken care of. We no longer have to live in shame. We get to be a people who are truly free. At the end of the book, Naomi is said to have a son. It's, it's technically Ruth's son. But, but what does that mean? Because the message of the book of Ruth is not, if you trust God, God will give you everything you want. The message of the book of Ruth is saying, God, you do with me what you want. And in the end, God brings something meaningful and beautiful out of it. He reshapes us and he remakes us and gives us life back. Ruth, by trusting God, in the end brought more wealth and more children into Naomi's life. And the story is that when we follow Jesus, we may not have the life that we expect. When we map out our lives, it's supposed to look like this and this and this. You may not have the life you expect, but you will have a better one. When we give up the definition of our own good for our own life, God will give us back, maybe not the life that we wanted, but the great life that God himself intends. To make a, a use of how this scripture talks about it today, Jesus gives us life that is better than seven sons. 
That's what it's meant to be. That everything you want to lay hold of in your life, say, this is what I need, this is what I want. When you open up your hands and put yourself into the great hands of Jesus, he will bring into your life what he intends. And sometimes it's not going to look anything like what you think. Sometimes he will take you through some crazy places to grow and restore and bring you back. But that's what he does because he is good. And so we trust him in that. Sometimes it's really hard to do. But if we're going to truly understand him as our great, the real, the true redeemer, we understand everything that he did. Like Ruth, Jesus works hard and well. God promised that Jesus would be our redeemer. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, I'm working, the Father's still working. What does he do? He, the works he does is what rescues and saves us. This is why our works don't mean anything. Uh, The scripture calls our works filthy rags before him. Because every time we try so hard to be like, oh, look how good I am, it all starts turning inward and becomes pride. I'm trying really hard. You ever notice if you start to read your Bible a lot, then you start to notice everybody else who's not reading their Bible as much as you are? You're like, what's wrong with those people? Right? Or you start praying a lot. Well, people don't pray enough. People need to pray more, like me. All of a sudden, everything starts turning into pride. When you become really theological, it's like, oh, I understand all these theological concepts. Why don't people understand these theological concepts like me? Right? We start becoming so prideful because our works tend to always come back to focus on ourselves. This is why we understand his work is the work that rescues and saves and redeems us. This is why when we talk about communion every week, you break that cracker to remind you it is Christ's body who is broken for you. You dip in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds you it's his blood that was shed to rescue and save us. That everything that separated us from God and us from one another was taken care of by Jesus at the cross. That's where it was taken care of. There. There. And so when you get so mad at somebody else for offending you because you're such an important God in your life, you can realize, oh no, Jesus was already crucified for what that person did. Oh, and you can begin to be involved in reconciliation and restoration. You can step out and bring redemption because God has first redeemed you. That's how it works. It's where it starts. It is all Him. And the works that then we do, because it's because we understand that God has first loved us. So the works that we do are not works to make God love us. It's works in response to God's great love for us. And that humbles us in the things that we begin to do. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you're in a place today where you just have so much works based around your life, where it's like, I've got to do these things to make God love me. I've got to do all that. If you have shame that sits in there because you feel like you never do the right thing or you always fail or you've done a million horrible things, they would love to pray with you about that. They would love to help you to understand the great grace and redemption that the real Redeemer brings into our lives. There's, I mean, there's this great beauty that this little love story in the Old Testament, four chapters long, every single page, it seems to point us back to the understanding of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything keeps coming back to this because we are so prone to forget that it is God who rescues and saves. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do good works. We should. We are told that God has designed certain things for us to do since the foundation of the world. And we go and we do good things, but those good things aren't to make God love us. It's in response to God's great love already poured out to us. And that changes the motive behind what we do. And we have more patience in what we do. We have more humbleness in the things that we do.
because it all starts and ends with our great Redeemer, who is Jesus. It's one of the reasons why on Sunday mornings at Element, we do most of our stuff on the back end of the service. It's, it's we do communion after the message because it's a response. It's a response. You actually have to get up and break a cracker and do it. The, the, most of the music is, is after the message because it's, it's our hearts responding to what God is doing. We even talk about giving and offerings, and we don't pass a plate. You actually have to get up and do it, because it's a response to what God is doing in our hearts. So you actually have to get up and, and give. We even hide some of the food after the last service, because the kids are like locusts, and they eat everything. Um, but, but we hide some, and then we put it out after the service, so you guys can go grab something to eat and meet some other people after the service. Because it's all responding to what God is doing in our lives. And that's what we want to be, a people who respond to what God has first done. We, again, love because God first loved us. That's how it's supposed to work. Our understanding of Him being our great Redeemer is what makes us go out and live the lives of redemption in one another's lives. Oh, He is the angry one, isn't He? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been so good the entire time. It's like I put people to sleep. It's great. (laughs) Would you guys pray with me? Father, this morning, we want to thank You for being our great and our good Redeemer. For Jesus coming to rescue and to save us. And I ask that our understanding of that would be what changes how we live. That would change how we love one another and serve one another. That what we do would be in response to what you have done. And we do ask in the places in our lives where we cling so strongly to our pride. That you would break us. But we would understand that when you do that, it's a gentle breaking. It's a breaking that brings us back to understand who you are and ultimately who we are meant to be. So I ask that you would teach us this morning to get our eyes upon you and to trust you and to walk in the ways that you call us to. So the world would understand more and more your great goodness. Father, in all the ways that we tend to continue to make our, our salvation and our life about ourselves, reveal that to us this morning. And have us see your great love first given to us, the calling that you have placed in our hearts and our lives, and how you constantly bring us back to see who you are and what you have done. And so in our lives, we begin to live out this great redemption by bringing redemption to those around us. By living in ways that call people back to understand who you are. That we would truly live as your people and as your children who have been adopted in and who have become your kinsmen. And that's that you would teach us day by day to live in the humbleness of the understanding of your great hope. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.